Hello everyone, it's July 14th, 2020, so Starliner has even more corrective actions to address before it can start flying crew. And in Starship news, there's a high bay being built in Boca Chica, most likely for Super Heavy. I'd call that progress. With that in mind, let's start the show and lift off. the tower welcome to episode 268 of the orbital mechanics podcast i'm david i'm ben and i'm dennis so at the top of the show since i don't know when else to talk about it i want to remind people about my other i don't know what you'd call it project podcast i don't mm. know it's not like an ongoing thing but i have some new episodes um oh, after cool. like two years so yeah i'm gonna start rolling those out um it's called pitch and roll yes it's a space flight reference or i guess just like a vague aeronautical one mm. but it's a scripted comedy i have great voice actors uh who do great work and uh i recommend people listen to it, but because I, I don't know if anyone has—I mean, Ben, you've heard them, right? I—I I, I listened to the first season. I—I I don't have a lot of time to listen to shows right now, but I'm about to go on a long road trip. So, well, I mean, they're each like ten to twelve minutes long. It's not long because it's—it's it's actually a huge amount of work, which is why it takes so long. Because I also have mm-hmm. to write them, um, mm-hmm. which that part actually doesn't take as long as you'd think. It, it's really just the recording and editing, um, and setting up and finding the right people and all of this stuff. It's like a. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's a crazy am- amount of work, but uh, it's fun, and uh, I just wanted to get that out there since it's it's mostly just a project, just because I like to do it. But um, I guess you can say that the cast is growing. So uh, it started off as just two voice actors, now it's up to three, and then there's like a fourth guest voice actor, and and then there's another one hmm. comes in towards the end. So I'm just kind of like growing this cast of people, doing these uh, little bits, I guess you can call them. And, and just to be clear. Dennis and I are not any of these voice actors. Oh, so, no. <laughs> like, go listen to it and hear voices that aren't ours for once. Yeah. It takes a long time to find, you know, the right, you know, like, the just it just to find the right voice actor. I was put in touch with some good ones. Um, and, yeah, these are professional voice actors who are very enthusiastic about doing something like this. Because most of the time, I don't know if you know how voice acting works, but it's mostly just doing, you know, TV commercials and radio stuff, stuff like mm-hmm. that. So, just to have the chance to actually act. Or, actually, a lot of them do video games. That's the other big one. In video a couple games, of, audiobooks. Like, are another good income source. Yeah. Video games and audiobooks are huge. I guess you can do some acting with video games. That's true, you know, but yeah, it's not quite the same thing. I think a lot of that too, though, is like my one friend that was a voice a- is a voice actor described it as like, you know, if a character lunges and they go, ugh, or whatever, mm-hmm. if you're a voice actor, you're like screaming that, you know what I mean, yep. to make it sound right. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, it's called Pitch and Roll. Check it out. Did we say it's sci fi? Yeah. Oh, so well, I, you know, I, I guess it kind of goes without saying because it's called Pitch and Roll, but I guess it also doesn't. It's called, so, yeah. So, yeah. Science know. fiction. <laughs> it's definitely science fiction y. Is there anything else to say at the top of the show? Well, Ben, you show you shared a really awesome tweet that I had not seen before. <laughs> yeah. This is, yeah. Andrew Zandanowitz sends us emails all through the week, and it's really cool to like have, because, you know, I mostly look at space news, like, dedicated at the end of the week before we do the show and so it's you know it's kind of cool to have another source um that's not just you know scrolling through twitter while you're in the bathroom and so uh, he sent us a a tweet that i totally had not never seen before it's mm-hmm. a video of what i believe is the most re- or the uh, um crew dragon mission um, but it's the booster landing on the barge and the angle is such that you can see or that so that the booster is in frame when it begins its landing burn uh, at the top of the frame and it comes in, you know, pitched over and it's just it's insane. It's it's, it's an intense mm-hmm. video. And crucially, unlike most of them, it doesn't cut out. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, because it's locally it recorded. <laughs> yeah, this this wasn't streamed video. I believe this was released after the fact, right? I see. These videos are 
have always been good, but this is the most visceral, like, oh, hey, that thing's coming in real fast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's a, you know, it's 15 stories tall. It's a wide-angle lens, so it kind of distorts your perspective a little bit. But yeah, it's important to keep in mind that it is 15 stories tall, like you said. Mm-hmm. I saw somebody uh, on Reddit this week. Uh, they, they posted a question about uh, Starship and said, well, why don't they just... Uh, swap the legs out for super legs is what they called them and just have it walk around on the surface so you don't have to care about where you land and it's like ah no you don't understand what you just said like <laughs> that's uh that's considerably have a heavier lift than you think it is literally and figuratively it's also just a terrifying thought so calling the chat has identified this as a uh, synthetic field of view video. So it's actually um, the 360 view of the first landing of, uh, of a Falcon 9 core uh, back from 2016. And uh, this video that we're talking about, it'll be in the show notes under uh, questions, comments, and correction burns, is actually just a square from the 360 view. And because it's um, been uh, squished out into a flat plane instead of a spherical plane or a spherical uh, video, it looks like the um, like the reprojected. Thank you, Colin. That's that's the correct word. It's been projected. The sphere has been projected onto a plane and then cropped. Although actually, I mean, technically, it's the other way around because YouTube projects a flat plane onto it. Anyway, uh, and so it looks like the core is coming in from uh, a high angle that's closer at a high angle that's closer to the horizon. But that's just uh, that's just an artifact of. Um, uh, the uh, unusually large field of view. What's new in the world of Starliner? What's new with Starliner is uh, even more recommendations for things it has to fix following that orbital flight test back uh, last December. I do recall that it was like 61 recommendations or 61, what do they call it? Something of action, something. uh... Yeah, corrective actions. Episode Mm. 251 was called 61 corrective actions. I think this is going to be episode 268. 80 corrective actions. 80 corrective actions, yeah. <laughs> so they've added 19 Perfect. more. Yeah, well, I mean, like, as I recall, it was recommended 61 corrective actions, but that didn't mean that they all had to be implemented. It was right. just, like, recommended, but they had to be, you know, evaluated first. So now it's up to 80, but how many are going to be corrected? I hope most of them. But, I mean, I think it's just that there are certain things that probably don't need to be actually addressed, um, but they're just it's just on the board as, like, you know, perhaps you should look into this, and then, you know, like, pending that, they might do something, but, you know, possibly not. I mean, I'm not sure how it goes, but I just remember that it was 61, it was like 61 suggested corrective actions, not necessarily that these are things that have to all be done. From what I understand, really, like the the new news, my my take on is that the new news is that there's, you know, this uh, internal or independent review team added 19 more recommendations, right, to bring it up to 80, and they kind of classified them, you know, I uh it sounds like this was from a media telecon, so it's not like there's a document where we have a list of all these recommendations that we can look at ourselves and really parse. But it's a lot of stuff related to kind of just, I mean, as you can imagine, right, the, that orbital flight test had a number of screw-ups, uh, in particular related to software, and not having kind of enough redundant season checks to let them escape the integration and uh, launch. And so, uh, yeah, that, that's kind of just, you know, the big thing. 
essentially. Just change some of the organizational structures, change how you deal with the code, change some hardware, you know, run the, the whole end-to-end testing, right? I remember that was something that popped up shortly after the, uh, the failed flight test. So, so to recap, um, we, we all know that something screwed, got screwed up on the orbital flight test. Uh, the Starliner wasn't able to make it to, uh, station. This is Calypso was the name of the Starliner. I, I actually didn't realize that was its, uh, vehicle name. Hmm. It's kind of nicknamed. Oh, that's right. Calypso. Calypso. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, there, there, there were a number of issues that were caught at different times. And so, uh, the kind of, uh, well, one of them, the big one, the biggest one I'd say was, um, well, what kept it from getting to station was that there was a uh, mission elapsed time error, uh, something about pulling the data from the uh, Atlas vehicle, Atlas V vehicle, that didn't quite work out. So then they go and look at that error like, while it's still you know up in orbit, and they catch another software mistake that could have led to the service module uh, after separating, basically going in the wrong direction and potentially collapsing with the capsule itself. And uh, and then the third major like error was during the whole time there were these uh, intermittent forward link communication problems where evidently out-of-band interference was uh, screwing with their ability to communicate the spacecraft. Um, I remember there was a lot of us speculating about Tedris not being, you know, available and whatnot. And I don't remember the whole story, but yeah, so there were communication problems. There was the software that led to that mission elapsed time error, which was the reason it couldn't get to station is because it didn't burn when it was supposed to. It was, you know, it's orbit raising burn. And then that uh, one that could have really been catastrophic would be the one with a potential collision because the time error, if there were astronauts on board, they would have probably been able to say, oh, well, this, is, this isn't right at all, you know, and actually just done the burn manually or something. But as far as that, I mean, you wouldn't want a collision to happen, period, but you especially wouldn't want it to happen if there's astronauts on board, you know? Yeah. And that was a thruster mapping issue, as I recall, right? That sounds like, right. Yeah. yeah. Yep, that's correct. The error that came from the mission elapsed timer had to do with, um, was it like the attitude control or? Uh... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The dead band. Yeah. It was being um, overly uh, sensitive and overly correcting. Yeah. yeah Emery it was trying to yeah. keep itself within. Yeah. Emery gave, uh, put on a clinic explaining that to us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I remember now. Yeah. yeah. And so, yeah, it, it, it burned too much fuel, basically trying to stay mm-hmm. within a tighter dead band, right, than it needed to. Right. So there's 10 assessment of software requirements. So these, and you have here, um, with multiple logic conditions to ensure full test coverage. I read that as redundancy, maybe, okay. or just, you know, some, some like basically a better lock to make sure, yeah, I guess, you know, better locks to make sure that all the conditions are satisfied. So you, you test that A equals B and that B equals A is kind of the, the basic way you think about it. So if you're looking at your software, you're going to test... Like, you know, in a website, it almost say, you know, test of the database matches the page and the page matches the database. So if you have, you know, type errors, you'll catch them. Um, mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. that's not really equivalent. I'm trying to think of how I would explain a SAS edit check because I've contributed to writing or to, to SAS edit check design. And, and we do the same thing where, you know, in some instances you say, you know what, we already have a check that looks at this one direction. We're not going to check it from the other direction. So I guess it would be if variable A is one, variable B should be two. So if that's a positive lock, it doesn't matter. You don't have to check it twice. But if you say if A is one, B should not be two, then you can go over to B and say if B is two, A should not be one. And that can help limit you. Okay, so that's that's software requirements. What's next? Yeah, so right, so what, there were 10 software requirements. Uh, 
I guess if you want, yeah, if we want to break down all 80, so there's 10 software requirement change uh, recommendations um, or corrective actions. So there's, uh, yeah, and there's also 21 related to testing and simulations. So um, this was, for example, this end-to-end, quote-unquote, run-for-record test before each flight, reviewing subsystem behaviors and limitations, very much related to kind of, you know, this seemed to be a lot about integration in particular. The lion's share recommendations went towards process and operational improvements. There were 35. This was something more about, I guess, the culture at Boeing. I mean, uh, mm-hmm. including uh, bolstering the number of participants in peer reviews and test data reviews, increased the involvement of subject matter experts in safety critical areas. That's always one thing that people in a lot of different fields can complain about. It's like, <laughs> I know this stuff. How come I'm not part of making these decisions. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Why not, you know, teachers complain about this. I say this as a teacher all the time, you know, why don't they get our input before they go and implement X, Y, or Z? And so, of course, this is in terms of safety, so quite a bit more important. There were seven recommendations. I imagine that these are ones that are not quite as flexible as we were talking about before, whether or not they're uh, implemented, but these are ones about the code specifically related to the uh, mission elapsed time and the service module separation anomalies. Um, I imagine NASA would want those to be remedied before they put astronauts in light against the station. And then finally, the final seven were uh, about, quote-unquote, knowledge capture and hardware modifications. Although, and here's something... Lessons learned, I guess. Yeah, because, and this is also, I think, related to safety culture. But like you say, yeah, lessons learned, I think, is a better way to describe that. I was going to put a bunch of literally question marks like this here, because this seemed like, at least for hardware modifications, I was like, this seems like an odd description. You know, actually, knowledge capture might actually describe uh, documentation. And I'm also willing to hold out that this might just, in the, in, this was specifically from the America Space article, and none of the other ones I looked at referred to this, like describing uh, this category of recommendations as what I've highlighted here, the organiz- organizational changes to NASA Boeing safety culture. So I would not, I mean, it could be a straight up mistake in the reporting as well, because that seems like a non sequitur to me when you talk about knowledge capture and hardware modifications. Again, I don't know much. This is not my world. <laughs> but like to describe that as organizational changes to the safety culture, that doesn't seem to follow to me. Yeah, no, no. I could, I could see organizational changes being related to documentation. Like, well, you can't just have mm-hmm. one team that just knows that this is how this works. You actually need to get it on paper so that other teams can see it and be aware of it and incorporate it and, you know, spot holes and things like that. So I shouldn't be reading hardware modifications as modifications to hardware, but rather the knowledge capture of hardware modifications and other aspects of... Yeah, maybe. I mean, that seems reasonable, doesn't it? It makes more sense than what I, like, my lack of understanding. (laughs) Yeah, one one day we'll get an old systems engineer from Boeing Mm -hmm. to come on the show and talk about this once all this is over and... (laughs) We've got people retiring from this and they go, oh, yeah, you know, I worked on that. And here's here's what this actually was happening. <laughs> yeah. So just to wrap things up, this uh, same uh, refurbished uh, Starliner uh, Calypso is the one that's planned to fly in the next Boeing mission, where if you recall, they said that they you know, they volunteered to uh, fly another. Uh, I say volunteered in air quotes. I'm not entirely sure how much volunteering that was, but um, to fly a uh, another uh, test flight at no cost to NASA uh, later this year. And so we've got that still happening in the future. And for anyone thinking about whether or not SpaceX had a successful demo mission, sending up Bob Bank and Doug Hurley, they're still up in space orbiting around us right now. 
and whether or not, you know, do we still want to have Boeing with their mishaps and, you know, Starliner as the second provider for commercial crew. Uh, NASA uh, has said that they are, quote unquote, definitely uh, going to go with both providers for the, you know, redundant reason, uh, reasons of redundancy and wanting, you know, yeah. down the line. It's It's a lot more than just these, you know demo flights, you know what I mean? Commercial crew. Mm-hmm. And so you don't want to overreact to something that shoots you in the foot three, four, five years from now when you, you know, if you only had one commercial crew provider. And they're so close. I mean, right. they have some issues, but they can be resolved. That's what this is all about, you know, so. Exactly. All right. Well, let's uh, translate on over from Starliner to Starship. And we have some updates on that now. And one really cool thing we know about Starship or that we can surmise is that there is uh, the construction of a high bay going on in Boca Chica. And this high bay is, you know, presumed to be for the first stage of the BFR. But that kind of got me thinking, I know that the first stage is larger, but why a, a bay for that, but not for the Starship itself. I think that they should have one, but I don't know why they're building Starship outside when they could be doing it inside just like this. So Maybe it's because they're going for a production model right off the bat, and they're okay with Mm -hmm. hoppers and and test articles being built Mm -hmm. outside, but the actual space hardware will eventually be built inside. And so this, they're, Mm -hmm. they're either building it now so that they're ready... And it just so happens that it's easy to build the super heavy in it because it's here. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if the super heavy was not going to do hop tests, right? They may just go straight to to orbit. Maybe, yeah. Well, Colin is saying they've been using a bay for the Starship, and it used to be called the High Bay until a new one was started. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the term bay is is debatable. Um, it, it was a structure, well, yeah. but it wasn't mm-hmm. it wasn't yeah. a structure like this. Right. right. One of the big things that they changed was let's not do welding outside because wind makes welding good seams hard. That wasn't because of the nose cone that fell off? I mean, maybe, but they, I've heard it attributed to welding quality, which which makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Right. Sure. But this is a proper actual, you know, bay that in like the sense that we think of it, kind of like a mini version of the VAB hmm. or maybe a pretty large one. I don't know. I have to think about the size we're looking at here because, no, the first stage just by itself is not as high as, say, a Saturn V. I don't yeah, it's believe. It's like half the height of a Saturn V. It's still pretty good size though, but... um, It's not small. Yeah, I, 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 just as an aside, I, I can't wait to actually see a super heavy. That's going to be something. I don't know. <laughs> I really, I really want to see one. So, uh, but another thing that also has come out um, is that uh, SpaceX's uh, director of satellite policy, David Goldman, uh, has been talking to the FCC, and there's some filings there. And based on them, we can make some speculations. And by we, I mean other people have and reported on them, and we are learning about these reports, about the uh, uh, basically the, the launch spectrum frequencies for all of uh, SpaceX's uh, vehicles, including Starship and uh, Super Heavy, which is pretty cool to start thinking about what kind of um, bands they'll be uh, uh, operating in, or, and specifically, I guess, which frequencies they'll get to use uh, ultimately. And so um, this is a, from an FCC filing. There's the telemetry link frequency roadmap which is a mouthful, but uh, from <laughs> to boil that down, uh, it sounds like based on this, the suggestion is that they're getting ready to do some more serious testing for Starship and Super Heavy. And so Super Heavy has gotten three frequencies assigned between uh, 2360 and 2395 megahertz, uh, which is in the S-band. Um, Starship has 
uh, some uh, frequencies assigned, which are actually the same as the Falcon 9s. So it's a little lower frequency between 2200 and 2290 megahertz, uh, still in the S-band. And so um, these are broken into three categories, uh, covering the pre-launch checks, the launch landing requirements. If I remember correctly, uh, these are the type of frequencies that uh, missiles, uh, ballistic missiles, uh, will tend to use um, also in this uh, range. And so, right, as you can imagine, just, you know, my in my understanding is you want to really make sure that you have a clear channel, you know, when you have this giant fueled rocket <laughs> and you're trying to communicate with it importantly. So the thing that's interesting about all this is that these bands are actually controlled by the FCC and, you know, you have to get temporary permission from them in order to use them. So I'm, I'm kind of wondering why not just use some other frequency that is not controlled by the government. But now I'm thinking that maybe it's because that's, you know, the safest way to go because they do have to be very clear, like you said, like you have to make sure that there's no interference. And so, you know, mm -hmm. that's why the FCC has these specific frequencies and then you ask them for that permission so that they can make sure that no one else is on them and that it's tightly controlled. But that is actually kind of an issue because like SpaceX wants to be flying vehicles very regularly and they can't do that if it takes them, you know, like a month or two to get permission to use a particular part of the spectrum. So I don't know. That's just kind of the question that I had. So this, this, this shows how little I know. I, and the last, I, okay, so I've got a, all right, so when I was at that uh, Satellite Constellation conference uh, a week or two ago, actually, it's probably about two weeks ago, I wasn't aware that there's really any spectrum that hasn't already been allocated to somebody. Um, mm -hmm. I, I figured, like, it, the, the competition between it is so great. And then also just, I mean, I mean, I guess, if you know, if you've got your ham radio or something, I guess, you know, you don't have to file for a license for that. Or But mm -hmm. you, you but do. It, um, you do. Because the ham radio portion of the spectrum is you know, is, is dedicated to that kind of communication. And so you, you do have to get a light. So basically FCC controls the entire radio spectrum, you know, basically mm. like from kilohertz up to gigahertz. Right. And so when you, what, what they regulate is uh, broadcast over a certain power. And so you, you do have to get a license to do any, you know, any kind of ham uh, activity and so when they're picking spectrums, they're, or when they're, when they're picking portion, uh, portions of the spectrum to allocate to like a space launch, they're trying to pick something that they can absolutely clear out. And so that's going to be a, a driver of what portion of the spectrum you get. Um, cause like you, you would never want to broadcast in the cell phone range because, <laughs> you know, there, there is no way you're going to get cell phone towers to shut down for, your launch and you wouldn't want that either because you know you're relying on cell phone communications for your team so that really makes sense and it also squares with what colin you know expected maybe the spectrum was already military allocated right and i yet i think i'd remember hearing about you know them using it for yeah for missiles and whatnot and so if it's military spectrum it's easy enough for you to you know square it away with the u.s military before you broadcast at those channels or those frequencies, I should say. But the issue, yeah, that, that SpaceX is having is can some of that part of the spectrum be set aside for them to use permanently because how else no. are they going to no, no, launch? Because, I mean, it, it's really expensive to permanently buy a band. And if you're only using it, you know, once a month, it's not worth it. For their Starlink, they'll probably want one, but not Starship. Yeah, well, they're thinking, I mean, to be honest, I don't remember, yeah, if it was the, for Falcon 9 or for, you know, the BFR, but they are going to be launching frequently enough that this is going to be a real hindrance because they can't wait around to get you know permission to use it because it takes time to get the FCC to 
just mm. say yes and they give you the spectrum to use. I don't know why. Is it just a bunch bureaucracy. of paperwork or something? Like, yeah, bureaucracy. Mm. But yeah, that's going to be a problem because if you think, yeah, it all depends on how frequently they launch. But if they do launch as rapidly as they say they're going to, then it'll be a problem. But if it's only like, you know, once a month, then yeah, it's, it's not a big deal. So I guess it all just depends on how much Starship is going to be flying, which, you know, remains to be seen for real. So yeah, probably mm. not as much as Elon Musk thinks it will be, but, <laughs> but one can hope. Keep in mind that these are stacked. There are multiple applications for each segment of the spectrum. And so they, um, it's not like this band is always dedicated to that, always and forever, everywhere. It's this is where you can get a license for that. And right. then, then we can clear out some room or whatever. All right, let's do four short and sweets this week. Why not? What's the first one, Dennis? First up, NASA X-ray Space Telescope's launch date delayed. The Imaging X-ray Polarimetry Explorer, or IXPE, is expected to be delayed from its May 2021 launch date. A three-month stoppage of on-site work at Marshall Space Flight Center due to concerns over COVID-19 occurred right during integration of the three mirrors, stopping the critical path of the observatory the entire time. This resulted in IXPE being the most seriously impacted by the pandemic of all of NASA's Explorer-class missions. The Space Telescope is intended to launch on a Falcon 9 and head to low-inclination LEO to avoid the South Atlantic anomaly. Next, uh, cost overruns result in changes to Europa Clipper instruments. NASA officials have recently conducted reviews on whether to continue or terminate three more Europa Clipper instruments, a camera, an IR imaging spectrometer, and a mass spectrometer. This follows the termination of the original magnetometer last year, which has since been replaced by a facility instrument. Though none of the three instruments have been canceled, the camera will get a cost cap. While the mass spectrometer has had its PI replaced, its risk classification changed to a more stringent level and a cost cap placed on it as well. The mission has a launch readiness date of 2024, intended for an SLS launch, but with Falcon Heavy as an option. Cool. And then thirdly, NASA has new planetary protection directives. In order to better facilitate long-term human exploration, NASA has updated some of its guidelines for Moon and Mars planetary protection. The Moon has been in a Category 2 level of protection, which required documenting all biological materials on board, but had no cleanliness standards. This has been downgraded to a Category 1, which has no requirements, though the polar regions will be kept at a Category 2. Requirements for Mars haven't changed, but studies will now be done to investigate how to do so responsibly. So, a modernized for people actually going to these places. And finally, NASA doesn't own a Falcon 9. So despite the NASA livery, the Falcon 9 core B-1058 is not dedicated to launches on NASA missions as we had previously speculated. This week, it was confirmed that B-1058 is scheduled to launch a NASA's 2, aka K-Milsat-1. This is South Korea's first dedicated military satellite, and it's tasked as a secure communications relay. All we know about the satellite at the moment is that it's built on an Airbus Eurostar 3000 bus. It was subcontracted to Eurostar by Lockheed Martin in order to meet the contracted price. All right, moving on to this week in spaceflight history. So uh, we have a couple of winners. We got Cy Kyle, the Greek, Ben Howard, CoasterGallery.com, and Deskin Miller. I think that's the first time. That's the first name, yeah. So the clue last week was how long does it take an astronaut to flip a patch upside down? 7.5 hours. So... How long does it take an astronaut to flip a patch upside down and why 7.5 hours, I guess, yeah. is the question question. There you go. Yeah. 
So, uh, July 15th, 1975, uh, this week in spaceflight history is the start of the Apollo Soyuz test project. Um, so let me give you, I, I don't want to talk about ASTP too much because, I mean, we've talked about it a little bit. I, I kind of want to be focused here. So let me give you a TLDR on ASTP. So it was an Apollo CSM and a Soyuz 7K TM. Uh, they launched obviously from separate continents, uh, and they launched seven and a half hours apart from each other. So that's the seven and a half hours. Uh, two days later, they docked with each other on orbit using a docking module that sat inside the Saturn S4B, kind of where the, well, exactly where the, uh, the lunar module uh, would have sat. Um, this was Deke Slayton's only space flight. Uh, remember, Deke was selected for the original Mercury 7, um, but then was uh, grounded due to his atrial fibrillation. If I remember right, it's something, there's a, there's a longer name for his condition, basically, you know, out, out of nowhere, transient ischemic atrial fibrillation, maybe? I don't know. But anyway, so obviously, uh, Deke contributed greatly to Apollo, at, you know, and NASA as a whole. Um, he's sort of the poster flight director. And of course, he was, uh, uh, wasn't he head of the astronaut office, I believe, at one point? But basically, um, we, we couldn't have done a lot of the things that we did as well as we did them without Deke. Uh, every, every time I uh, land on his Wikipedia page, I, I feel sad that this was his only space flight. He... Uh, could have been one of the best astronauts we ever had. He was so well-educated and had so much experience. Um, I, I don't know. Um, you know, obviously I don't, I don't know the guy personally, but it just seems like we, we missed out on something, but luckily we gained, uh, so much in exchange for him only ever flying once. So, uh, it was Deke Slayton's only space flight. And, um, while they did science, uh, they also did some very symbolic things to show uh, that it was the end of the space race. One of the things that they did was they uh, exchanged a, a beautiful two-part plaque. So uh, you could say that Apollo went up with two part A's and Soyuz went up with two part B's and they both came down with an A and a B. Um, and there'll be a photo in the show notes, but they are these beautiful interlinking plaque that has pieces that cross over and they were a crossover from one half to the other. And it, it, you know, just, it's cool because they were constructed on separate continents. Um, the other thing that they did that I, I think is pretty cool and is, is, uh, symbolic are they, they had, uh, individual patches that didn't really look alike, but they also had, uh, like a mission emblem that, that was a patch, uh, like a, like a, maybe an official patch, you might say, or a, a outward patch. Um, but the two were not mirror images, but they were rotated 90 degrees. So on one side, it says Apollo. On the other side, it says Soyuz and then uh, Soyuz and Cyrillic. And then in the middle is uh, a globe with Apollo Soyuz uh, docked together. And the two patches are, are just rotated versions of each other. And it's, it's really pretty. So there you go. It takes seven and a half hours to flip a patch upside down by, by launching mm -hmm. these two separate missions. So obviously, uh, well, you might think it's obvious that an Apollo CSM and a Soyuz can't dock together. That isn't exactly true, but in this case, they, 
they weren't able to. And so they had a, a docking module that they shared that allowed them to connect to each other. And David and Dennis, I'm sure you remember uh, seeing uh, the Apollo Soyuz display at the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum. And so uh, that display included a backup, the, the backup model uh, or the backup article, I guess, of uh, of the docking module. I, I really like this thing. It's, uh, you know, sort of a special use kind of kind of thing. I mean, we built two of them. We only ever flew one of them, and it really did this one job and nothing else. I also like it because technically it's a space station. Um, it has its own air supply, and it has docking ports. Um, but in, in reality, it's just an airlock, uh, unfortunately. Um, it's it's pretty big. It's three meters long and a meter and a half uh, wide, roughly. Inside, uh, it had a 0.34 atmosphere oxygen environment. Uh, which matched the CSM atmosphere. Now, you might remember that Soyuz uh, flies with a nitrogen-oxygen atmosphere at one atmosphere, so it's, it's incompatible. And in order to go from a nitrogen environment to an oxygen environment, you have to lower... Well, you either have to pre-breathe um, just oxygen to purge all the nitrogen out of your system, or you can do what they did, which is uh, you lower the atmosphere or you, you lower the pressure uh, down to, in this case, 6.8 atmospheres. So they breathed uh, their N2O2 mixture at a lower pressure. Oh, you, you meant uh, were... 0.68. Sorry, you just said 6.8. I just want to oh, okay, avoid yeah. us getting burnt. <laughs> yeah, a 6.8 atmosphere environment would be pretty brutal. So, uh, so they lowered their atmosphere and then they can, uh, um, drop all the way down to the, to the lower O2 atmosphere. I'm sure that this was still, you know, dangerous in the long term, but, uh, obviously it was safe enough that they weren't worried about getting the bends immediately. I guess the point here is that they didn't completely match environments in two spacecraft. They needed this uh, airlock to be able to to get together. And so uh, I mentioned that the docking module is really just an airlock. And I think the the real key point there is that it doesn't have any o, uh, any CO2 scrubbing capability. Um, it had gas. It had spheres on the outside to store breathing gases, but that was to drive the pressure changes, not to uh, not to actually keep people alive. And you know, of course, we all know that CO2 is really the limiting factor in atmosphere control or in environmental control. It, you don't die of not having enough oxygen. You die of having too much CO2 in general. Um, so inside the docking module is kind of fun because the exterior, I think, is, is fairly familiar to space nerds. The interior, there, there are many fewer photos of the interior. So it had, uh, some control panels, including atmosphere controls. It also had, uh, radios for VHF and FM. And that is part of what I feel like is contributing to it being, uh, a space station on its own. It also had storage compartments for television cameras and things like that. And interestingly enough, it was painted uh, that classic Russia green that you see inside the space station, the International Space Station and uh, and Mir and Salyut and mm. everything. So uh, it had two hookups uh, for the two spacecraft. Um, from Apollo, it got power and communication. And then the Soyuz side, they actually had... Uh, like an umbilical they could bring out and plug in to be able to connect wired communications between Soyuz and Apollo, which is pretty neat. 
Um, and like I said, it got power from the CSM. Uh, the docking module itself had no power supply, no batteries, no solar arrays. And that's another point against it actually being considered a space station. So the, the big reason to have uh, the docking module uh, other than uh, breathing atmosphere or uh, the, the, the air inside um, was the docking uh, setup. So Apollo had their classic Apollo probe and drogue. Um, and then Soyuz had a pass. I believe that if given the choice, NASA would have ditched the docking module and just flown an a pass on the top of, of the command module. Um, but in this case, they were actually using basically surplus hardware leftovers from the Apollo program. And so they, they didn't have that luxury. And you might ask, well, you know, if, what would you do about atmospheres if you, if you didn't have, uh, the docking module? Well, actually, originally, um, they were planning on going to, uh, to a Salyut. Uh, the original mission was Apollo Salyut, not Apollo Soyuz. Um, but Russia, after they started plans, uh, Russia ended up changing spacecraft. Uh, I believe for cost savings, I think they would have had to fly a Salyut on its own because they don't want, uh, Americans in, uh, in a military Salyut, right? So, you know, however that worked out on their end, uh, this could have been the Apollo Salyut test program, which would have been pretty cool. APAS was developed uh, specifically for this program, um, and it was intended to be a, a universal standard. APAS, this version, is is just APAS by itself. APAS only was really ever used once. Um, they had um, two backup Soyuzes installed uh, with an A-pass. The hot backup, the one that was actually on a pad ready to go, uh, was disassembled, but the cold backup actually did fly on its own mission, but they pulled the A-pass off and installed a scientific instrument. So we can talk about ASTP as being the end of the space race, but I, I think A-pass itself was the true end. Uh, and, you know, in as much as A-pass was part of ASTP, uh, we can kind of credit ASTP as being the end of the space race. APAS required a huge amount of cooperation to develop. And one of the great things I think that we get out of the accounts, the, the, the storytelling of the era, the, you know, kind of the, the corporate storytelling is that APAS proved that formal meetings where minutes are being taken and recordings are happening and, and you're going to have to make reports on the meeting. They, those kind of meetings really lead to fewer agreements and cooperation than informal phone calls. Um, APAS was really, you know, we, we got some of the basics down in the formal meetings, but the little details that really matter, uh, were all decided over the phone without, you know, without record keeping. APAS, uh, had, uh, descendants. Um, but this version, uh, is the only one with outward facing, uh, pedals. Before I move on, also Colin in the chat has got a really nice little, uh, a nice little statement that, yes, I, I've also heard this as well, that the docking module allowed, uh, sort of a diffusion of tension. So APAS stands for the androgynous peripheral attachment system. The androgynous part means that either side can be active or passive. And apparently there was a little bit of ultra macho heteronormative misogyny going on because neither country wanted to be the passive side. Um, and I, I think back then it was often called the female side. And I think that's where some of this macho business comes in. But um, both sides developed their own 
version of APAS, right? The US had hydraulically actuated shock absorbers. The Russians had electromechanical uh, shock absorbers. And uh, the US had a like a winch system to actually pull the passive partner in and, and make uh, that hard connection with the, with the docking ring. And the Russians had an electromechanical version and like a, I believe a geared, uh, drivetrain. And so neither country wanted to be passive. They wanted to use their own solutions and to be in control, right? And so by including this docking module, it kind of takes attention off. Uh, it's, it's okay if you're passive as long as you're not mating with another spacecraft. But yeah, Colin uses the word ignominy. What? It avoided, uh, it allowed both sides to actively dock rather than having one country suffer the ignominy of being the passive side. And also they, they did do two docking maneuvers, and I believe they switched active-passive roles um, as well. So anyway, APAS, the first, APAS, the, APAS Senior, I guess, is the only one with outward-facing pedals. And having them on the outside makes a lot of sense because it leaves a lot of interior diameter to play around with. And so if you think about these pedals coming in, if you if you kind of stick three fingers out in a cone shape, you can mesh your hands together. So the pedals um, surround the docking ring and they interface with like chamfers on the uh, on the other docking port to align themselves and push themselves around. Um, whereas the later versions had inward-facing ring uh, pedals, which push against it pushes pedal to pedal instead of pedal to chamfer, I guess. And then, and then I, I mentioned the two different shock absorbers and retraction mechanisms. It's really fun that they truly came up with different solutions to the same problem. All they had to agree on was the interface. It doesn't matter how how everything happens behind the scenes. Um, so like I said, there were later versions. Um, APAS-89 was installed on Mir's Crystal module. It was intended for Buran to dock with, but ultimately only the shuttle ever docked there for, uh, for shuttle Mir missions, which were pretty darn cool. Shuttle uh, retained APAS-89 um, and later used it for docking with ISS. However, P the PMAs on station don't use APAS-89, they use APAS-96, um, which is basically the same thing. It just, uh, APAS-96 is passive only. So it's kind of a, a beautiful little, little legacy. You know, uh, we have these different versions of, of APAS and the, the two later versions look nothing like the original. And then, of course, since then, we've developed uh, the, international uh, the international docking adapter, which is uh, an APAS-derived uh, specification, but it's, it's a little different. So anyway, uh, all that to say, there you go. That's, that's this week in spaceflight history. Uh, sorry, I didn't talk about ASTP in particular, but I'm just so fascinated by docking and by the ASTP docking adapter that I, I couldn't bring myself to to be so limited. <laughs> so what is the clue then for next week? All right. Next week in 1999, the clue is pumpkin in a paper bag. So this week, I do know what that is in reference to because uh, I was part of trying to figure out what <laughs> next week's clue is going to be. So I know, uh, but if anyone out there thinks that they also know um, without mm. cheating like I did, just give us a tweet with the hashtag this week SF and good luck. Good luck, everybody. Let's do upcoming space flight events. Then we have five of them, five different events three launches two other things <laughs> three three other things yeah 
Or three, right. or three other things. Yeah. Two so, or th- three launches. Three launches, two spacewalks, and a conference. So first up is an H-2A flying the UAE Mars mission called HOPE. Uh, well, uh, I th- it's called the Emirate Mars missions. So, uh, but yeah, HOPE. Uh, so exciting. Um, it's a Mars orbiter that uh, is developed by the Mohammed bin Rashid Space Center in Dubai in partnership with the Laboratory for Atmospheric and Space Physics at the University of Colorado. And uh, y'all know that I love seeing rockets flying out of Tanegashima. It's so beautiful. But you can catch this uh, beautiful launch site uh, on July 14th at 2051 hours UTC. And then shortly afterwards, uh, less than 10 minutes afterwards, if I'm reading this correct, <laughs> uh, keep an eye out for a Falcon 9 that'll be taking uh, the Anasis 2 uh, uh, or KMILSAT-COM-1, a communications satellite for the South Korean military uh, that we talked about earlier in the show, flying that at 2100 UTC uh, out of uh, Slick 40 at the Cape. And then the following day on the 15th is the launch of a Minotaur 4 with a National Reconnaissance payload, um, and that will be Enroll 129. So it's classified as a spy satellite, so I guess we're not going to know much about it, but yeah, um, it's a National Reconnaissance thing. Um, and that's launching from Wallops from Pad 0B, and the launch time is 1300 UTC or 9 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time, so perfect time to watch. So after that, we have two spacewalks happening. Um, one, or the, the first one is happening on July 16th. This is, uh, US EVA 67. Um, it's Bankin and Cassidy. The coverage begins at 6 a.m. Eastern time on July 16th. And then the spacewalk is scheduled to begin at 7.35 a.m. Eastern time. Um, and then just a couple days later, uh, on Tuesday the 21st, we have US EVA 68, which is also Bankin and Cassidy. Um, and the times are the same. It's, uh, starts at 6 a.m. Eastern time and it's scheduled to begin at 7.35 a.m. Eastern time. These are both, uh, seven hour EVAs ish. You know how it kind of floats around. Um, and they're both, uh, addressing the, the battery, uh, update. So, you know, boring as far as spacewalks go. If, if spacewalks can be boring, this is a boring spacewalk. <laughs> and then if you just back up, uh, or if you return to Thursday, uh, July 16th, um, there's a press briefing, uh, on the first that should include the release of the first solar orbiter missions, uh, first solar orbiter images. So the solar orbiter, uh, if you recall, is the ESA, uh, is the ESA Solar Orbiter that um, was launched earlier this year. And uh, it is at, uh, I got a whole bunch of different time zones. It was tough for me to track this down, but it's uh, going to be uh, for early risers at 6 a.m. Pacific, <laughs> 9 a.m. Eastern, or uh, 1,300 hours uh, British summertime or 1,400 uh, Central European summertime. And so, um, you know, this being ESA, so it's going to be a little more you know, mid-afternoon for the Europeans. Um, but in any event, uh, if you want to check it out, we'll have a uh, link to the webcast uh, in the show notes. All righty. Well, those are your upcoming spaceflight events. Let's deorbit then. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. 
Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen, or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can join our Discord for free during social distancing. Check out our Twitter or Reddit for links. We're Orbital Podcast on both and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. So that's it. We will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you.